Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Huge Friday edition of the Dunked On Basketball podcast. We actually will have a Game 7. It didn't look that way for a while as the leading teams won the first four games of these Game 6s, but then the Clippers pull out a really, I thought, special road win against the Jazz when it looked like they were completely outmanned. Boston mercifully closes out the Bulls in a series that ultimately ended, I think, the, the way everyone thought it would. And Washington with a virtuoso performance from John Wall and Bradley Beal scoring their most ever combined points in a game. Take care of the Atlanta Hawks. We're sponsored today by Stamps.com. Go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone, enter cap space. Easy to remember because we talk about it all the time on the program. And you can get a four-week trial plus postage and a digital scale without any long-term commitments. So again, we're going to do all five of these Game 6s today. We didn't have a a Thursday episode, so we could wait and get all of these in. Patreon subscribers did get those two games from last night early, but now we're going to give those to the Dunkdown people as well. And don't worry, Dunkdown people, like you're not getting anything less than you would have because... We were going to push this episode to Friday anyway. It just so happened that we could give a little extra benefit with an extra episode. We can only do five episodes a week of Dunked On uh, due to our advertising commitment. So, all right, with all that out of the way, please subscribe (laughs) to us uh, on Patreon, patreon.com slash Duncan LaRue. Scale 1 to 10, Danny, how surprised are you that the Clippers won this game and, in fact, won it somewhat comfortably despite what nearly became a huge collapse late? Probably about a 7, but... I'm more like a nine if you consider how they won this game because by and large, when I mean obviously Chris Paul was great and and, there, and DeAndre was great for for stretches, but one of the distinctive points of this game is that the Clippers bench outplayed the Jazz bench, and I never saw that coming. Neither did I. And the key point of the game, it was 22 to 13 Jazz. Chris Paul and DeAndre Jordan were about to go out of the game for their rest. And the Clippers actually came back and took a lead in large part without those guys on the floor as reserves versus reserves. Mo Spates, who barely played in the second half, only basically to avoid the hack of DJ and, and a couple more minutes. He had nine huge points. He hit a three, had a couple offensive boards in the first half. We saw Luke Mbamute get into the act, hitting a couple of jumpers. He had a cut along the baseline. He hit a corner three and getting those kinds of unexpected 
expected points for the Clippers were just enormous and they got back into contact there and then still it seemed like the Jazz were really outplaying and the Jazz would go up by four or six and then the Clippers would get back into contact the Jazz missed a bunch of open threes in the first half they were three of nine on threes and then I think they missed their first seven of the second half and then by that time it seemed like the Clippers had started to get into their heads and well, we'll talk about the Clippers offense and the Jazz defense momentarily. To me, just having Austin Rivers back was huge. Rivers in this one, after being on what seemed like a minutes limit in game five, was able to play 35 minutes in this one. Raymond Felton gave them 20 minutes. Paul Pierce, 22 minutes. He was plus 10. And of course, Chris Paul was amazing on both ends. But I thought really, and Doc Rivers cited this after the game, the pressure that the Clippers put on the Jazz players getting over screens refusing to be screened was enormous especially in the second half as the jazz really struggled to get any separation with their perimeter players i don't like falling back on the whole thing of playoff experience and and everything of that nature but the clippers knew what playoff defense looked like and they knew what it felt like to play it and i wouldn't say that they did that in the first half you know the jazz missed a lot of shots they should have made but starting probably around like the eight minute mark that's what i'm thinking of in the third quarter they really did do that ball denials contesting and the jazz couldn't counter it or maybe they maybe they could but they didn't and that was really impressive because you could say that the clippers did this remember the first two weeks of this season the clippers were the best defensive team in the nba with a very different roster and a different approach but they were able to pull i didn't it think they could do it without blake griffin though i thought neither that did they I. just and rivers was just good enough on hayward joe johnson finally got shut down and bob mute did a nice job on him chris paul you know again it was really good they can't get a lot of switches and deandre jordan was huge at the rim as well and then towards the end he was able to get on the floor obviously had that huge play uh stopping joe johnson late after the jazz uh, furious comeback and i mean utah before uh, that late flurry managed only five out of 21 on three-pointers that obviously killed them because they had a lot of open looks and just couldn't hit any jumpers in the mid-range either 415 although those were some tougher ones uh paint floater range five of 14 and then they didn't get hardly any shots at the rim either only 18 shots at the rim is a very very low number even in this glacially paced game that was about 85 possessions so uh, the clippers started to d up especially in the second i think the jazz got a little tight after they were getting great looks early and couldn't knock him down and then the longer it went on the more chris paul uh, could take over and uh because he got such a nice rest and so did dj they were plenty fresh down the end and they were able to take control and lead by 14 points with under four minutes remaining in this game and they still almost blew it something that was striking to me and might be reflective of just kind of how this game was for the jazz is that nobody maybe for certain stretches george hill really struck out as having even a very good game i'm not saying they were all bad but usually in a game especially with the with the jazz depth you go oh you know this guy had a nice performance Howell Neto probably relative to expectations Neto and George Hill probably had the best games but both of them were not well, that's interesting actually because uh Bob Volgaris actually was tweeting that Quinn stayed too long with Neto and I agree with that too yeah yeah and while and I agree with that as well because Neto uh played 13 minutes and you know before that crazy comeback George Hill had only played 27 now Hill had some foul trouble but he was never in like great difficulty he, was, he had three fouls with four minutes left in the game um 
And so, you know, yeah, I think Hill could have played a little bit more, maybe given a bit more creation to some of those bench units in, in you know, late third, early fourth quarter when the, the Clips made another nice run. Um, but I still thought that, you know, Neto did play above expectations to me. And he had a couple of great plays on DeAndre Jordan. He ran him down from behind, was 35 feet behind the play and managed to run him down and knock it off his leg. That was incredible. And then he broke up an alley-oop to him that unfortunately just became a Chris Paul three right after that. So he was good. But yeah, I mean, it, I agree agree with you you'd be it'd be a struggle to find a guy who played well uh, for the jazz um and and some of the course of the whole game some of the culprits i mean rodney hood two of ten and a lot of those were open shots zero for six from three from what i recall at least five of those were wide open gordon hayward was three of nine from three i think he missed his first five and i understand that some of that is just noise and i'm not saying they were you know they were tight or anything like that but it's so hard to overcome so many guys struggling at the same time yeah it is and but i thought still the jazz also were really defending very well in the first half right it was guys like spates or mba mute like you know just hitting random shots it was chris paul just kind of willing his way to the line and getting some bullshit calls it was it, you know little things here or there where it felt like the jazz were defending and then in the third quarter they no longer were and and this this game ended up 98-93 but it was a pretty darn slow pace throughout most of it and the clippers you know if they'd scored better down the end it, it would have looked a lot better for them as well um but like in the third quarter especially it seemed like rudy gobert was forced to come out further on the pick and roll they got a couple of nice lobs where they lifted the backside guy and then you know the, the backside guy hayward once i think it was uh netto once maybe it was hood a couple of times just wasn't able to get there on deandre jordan and he got dunks uh and then jamal crawford also really cooked i mean crawford was only five out of 12 for the game uh which it seemed pretty weird for 12 points so like it seemed like he was killing angles but he did have a stretch where he was just blowing by joe angles and then paul did the same thing to him and you saw joe angles much like his countryman matthew delavadova great effort great at getting around screens great at using angles but if you kind of make it simple and just like all right guard one-on-one he just can't stay in front of guys we found out in this game uh that wasn't a huge surprise so i really liked the way that the clippers attacked him as well and and then the defense that they're able to play again i mean Bob mute was great i mean 13 points out of him was ridiculous reddick only played you know he was one out of four he barely played he played like 20 minutes um and then of course chris paul i mean there's almost nothing left to say about him 29 points eight assists he did have two horrible turnovers late um but you know obviously was a huge key to the game for the clippers a couple other oh, things austin we... rivers had 13 points yeah. as well he was he was great he was a couple other things i feel like we have to discuss in this game one was rudy gobert turning his ankle on a missed free throw by deandre jordan and amongst all the ankle sprains that we see and it's something that is very common in the nba it was a little bit weird because it was a solo ankle sprain there was there was the ball wasn't there he didn't trip on somebody else's foot it was just him on that same knee that got on that same leg that had the hyperextension just not getting all the way under himself and then and then basically he had to miss a bunch of time yeah i think it was rivers who was kind of running past him but didn't actually make contact we thought initially that he had made contact and maybe he saw rivers there and kind of just recoiled back because of the knee already as he's feeling a little bit uh, self-conscious of it or maybe he just didn't have the proprioception which basically if you don't know what that means that's just you know knowing where your body is in space essentially and when you have swelling and you have an injury 
that's kind of something that's like the last thing that comes back and so maybe that was just part of it because it was on the, that same knee but yeah gobert really was struggling they took him out he tried to come back in and really the, the comeback started once they went to favors i don't know how much of that had to do with you know gobert being ineffective when he was out there um but yeah i mean it, going forward now i mean we'll talk about game seven a little bit more going forward it is a huge question mark of like what he's gonna be able to give them now in game seven because obviously his return completely changed the series and it's also sometimes hard to to quantify gobert's impact because teams are just spooked by him in terms of getting taking harder shots because they think he might be there releasing floaters early and also those who look at you know just shots defended at the rim or blocks he also had i think it was five steals in game five was absolutely massive in that way and his activity and passing lanes and just gumming things up was a part of the jazz success defensively in the first half yeah the way that they are playing the pick and roll and it depends on how well chris paul shoots the mid-ranger but they would try to keep chris paul on the left side of the floor so they screen it flat to the baseline he'll come off that screen and then snake back to the middle of the floor he likes to get to that right elbow of course and what Gobert, nearly unique among NBA players, has the ability to do is to get out towards Chris Paul, kind of faint towards him, make him think about that he might go for a steal. And then once he has done that, he can retreat back to DeAndre Jordan. He's got so much length that he can prevent the lob pass. And hopefully by that point, whether it's Ingles or George Hill or, or Neto, that guy is able to get back to Paul and contest his mid-range jumper. So you'll see that there's almost this contest for you know there's this window of time where Gobert has fainted towards Paul. Now he's retreating. Can the guy who got over the screen initially get back to Paul in time to contest that mid-ranger? And I thought the Jazz did relatively well on that, but Chris Paul is obviously one of the best. And even when you contest it, he is so money on that 15-footer that you're really incredibly worried about it. But without uh, Gobert or if Gobert's mobility is compromised, you have to imagine that certainly given how gimpy he looked, that this is one of those things where, you know, if it were the regular season, he probably wouldn't be playing and they're i'm sure they're working maybe even at this very moment as we record this at 12 17 a.m pacific time to try and get that swelling down but uh, it's going to be very interesting to see what he can give them now at least they do have a backup who can play in favors and, and has had some success in this series but you would think that without gobert the advantage would shift back and obviously you know we know what the record is for game sevens at home did this game change how you feel about this i mean let's say that this game was like game three or something or, or game four of the series and it tied it at two two or something instead of tying it at three three and would that make you say all right you know the clippers have found something and the jazz are big underdogs i mean forgetting about the whole game seven thing you know just how do you feel about these two teams going forward and then you know we got to price in the game seven aspect of it too but just that part of it it would not other than the gobert injury which of course is an important factor yeah. in this and that this was closer to what the clippers are at a hundred percent what that looks like now post blake griffin than they have been before and i thought they did a better job defending and they they showed a level of capability that i think is important but I thought that was there. I didn't, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a doubt. I'm more confident, but it I always had that expectation, even with guys like Ray Felton, who, you know, he's had some nice defensive moments actually, as he's been a Clipper this year. But I don't think that a lot of the jazz struggles were really, especially in that first half, like they were getting good shots and just not missing and just not making them. And so I think when, when something like that happens, I'm not going to freak out too much about it. And it's possible that rears his head again, it certainly is, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't expect 
respect it. So I think one of the questions, and you and I talk about this all the time, but I want to see who gets better shots early and then how that changes over the course of the game, because that was one of the biggest shifts between the first and second half of this one. Oh, for sure. And I mean, the other thing you might say, though, other than Gobert, is just that Austin Rivers was able to play 35 minutes. And, you know, he's obviously been a polarizing figure. We've made fun of him plenty, but just the fact that he is able to guard Gordon Hayward passably, you know, it's not like Gordon went off in, in this game. Uh, they don't really like get Hayward into the post that much. So, you know, having a guy who can really get into him it, it can be pretty useful. That also puts Mbamute Mute on Joe Johnson. And I know Joe Johnson killed Mbamute Mute in game four, but I still don't think that's like some amazing matchup that the Jazz can just go to ISO Joe one-on-one all the time. Uh, getting Rivers in there also takes away another one of these small, small, pick and roll targets uh for the jazz and then he went three of seven on three pointers in this game and had some pretty decent moments he gave five out of ten 13 points uh so and the jazz weren't able to take advantage really in this game on the offensive glass very much either until very late in the game so i think just having one more guy who is a semi-decent player and, and rivers you know he's short for a shooting guard and he plays small forward for this team just because he has to and it's been it's impressive how well he's able to compete against guys who are a lot bigger than he is i don't know if he can give them this kind of a performance offensively in the next game you know he sure looked bad in game five but you know looked pretty good in this one so i wouldn't expect him to play as well i wouldn't expect spates to give them nine points and bob mute is not gonna give him 13 uh but they might get more from reddick next game i do think that the clippers looked a lot better than they really are in this game because of some of these unsustainable role player guys and then the jazz of course you'd have to say that someone like hood joe johnson was only three and nine favors was one one out of six he'd been shooting great in the series that kind of thing uh, the three-point shooting even after a late run was only seven out of 26 clippers went nine out of 21 if gobert were healthy and i knew he was i think i would actually favor the jazz in this game even after all this i think you know it's very easy to get caught up in the narrative and forget why we were like hey the jazz are really looking a lot better than the clippers and they're looking pretty thin here but with rivers looking better able to play his full minutes now we didn't know if he was going to be able to do that and with Gobert kind of iffy you know I would favor the Clippers but not that much you know I think this is like you know 60 40 type of thing which given the record in game sevens uh maybe is a little bit of a surprise but uh by the by the next time we record we'll know the answer to this because they're playing on Sunday there's one more very important thing we have to talk about and was a a prominent feature of the Twitter NBA show and that is Quinn Snyder's decision with one exception to not engage in hack a DeAndre Jordan and I think that was a significant tactical mistake once their offense started flatlining for two reasons that we we talked about on the show one is the Clippers offense was playing very well so so you have that you know the the expected points per possession is different and the second part is that Utah doesn't run anyway so the idea of well you're losing the prospect of transition opportunities the other team gets to defend in the half court big whoop that's every jazz possession well I also would say too another reason is you're down by 10 and you're down by 10 with five minutes minutes left and by the time it got to 14 it was really almost too late and i know they made this comeback i wanted to say one thing on that too later but uh you got to extend the game especially at this glacially slow pace you need to get more possessions i mean if you're down 10 and you have 10 possessions like left in the game with five minutes to go probably more like nine or eight frankly with how slow the game was going and potentially offensive rebounds like 
and, and and dj was bricking his free throws he was three for 11 from the foul line so it was a little weird because they weren't in the bonus at that time they would have had to foul to get into it but i think especially when you're down you got to go for the more high risk strategy there and now you might say hey you know they got back into it uh they were able to get a chance to tie it but it's interesting to think of it right like to say oh it was 99% win expectancy when they were up by 14 points with under four minutes to go you know game over like how can you say that they they had a chance to tie think of all the shit that had to happen there was a three-shot foul there was ridiculous turnovers they had two separate 7-0 runs uh during that time and then they still only had maybe a 25% chance with that joe you know hitting a three when they know you need a three at the end maybe a 25% chance of tying the game to have a 50% chance so even after all that happened that last possession with joe johnson bringing it up there they probably still only have a 12 percent chance to win and that's after they made up 11 points of the 14 point deficit so that's why we say that there's so so little chance there even though a lot of times it seems like oh they got pretty close you know they were within a couple of possessions you know a couple of things could have gone right like that's why it really is that dire when you're down 14 with you know under four minutes to go and that's why you build a lead you build a lead so that if weird stuff happens you can still survive and play the next day and that was also true in the toronto game i mean people focused on how toronto blew that lead and sure that's a part of the story but building it meticulously over time consistently outplaying the bucks for the first 20 i don't know like 32 minutes maybe of that game that opened the door for all that to happen that said there's an important counter to that how the clippers blew some of those possessions was a little concerning maybe not in game seven but if they advance in terms of their next opponent because they just made some stupid mistakes i still hope the jazz win because the clippers are getting swept maybe i, I think, maybe they, I I think they take one for i think they take one from the warriors if that's what happens do you i do it's a gentleman's right, well. it's a it, it, it's funny because it wouldn't be a gentleman's sweep because the warriors would not concede a single a single game in that in that series they hate the clippers but yeah i agree with you it, the only exception to that would be if gobert's injury is way worse than we expect but i don't think that i, I don't think he's gonna be out for like a week or something yeah i'm sure you're gonna try and play but you know a lot of times on ankle sprains it can look pretty bad uh, when you do try and play i mean just ask blake griffin who tried to do it in 2013 by the way actually this is an aside I was read Kevin Arnovitz's piece on the Clippers and, and he spent a lot of time on on the issue of you know if they gotten past their chemistry issues and now are they going to stay or not and you know and, and all that's interesting to me but to me they're just not that interesting of a story because they just don't have enough good players like Blake Griffin is not good enough anymore like he's not the same guy that he was three years ago and then they just don't have enough you know good two-way players on the wing so you, you know it's kind of like whether they have good chemistry or not doesn't matter because their players aren't good enough. Um, but he did remind the you know there's a, they talk about all the missed chances for the Clippers there to make the conference finals and you know obviously there's that Houston game six blowing the 19 point lead. Corey Brewer and Josh Smith hitting all those threes but 2013 they're up 2-0 in that series game five Blake Griffin gets a high ankle sprain if they win that series Russ gets injured in the first round they roll through the thunder in the next round they make it to the conference finals against the Spurs uh probably pretty easily if Blake doesn't suffer that injury but instead they lost in six uh, to Memphis and uh you know Del Negro ended up getting fired I mean a lot of not that Del Negro was doing a great job I think Rivers has been way better than him but that's that's 
that's a series that a lot of people forget uh, when they talk about the Clippers' woes. It is pretty remarkable that there are two teams at the same time in the same conference that had championship potential upside that both got sidetracked due to injuries. All right, we'll, uh, I think we're ready to move on to uh, John Wall, a, a, maybe the best performance of his career, uh, certainly in, in, in the playoffs against Atlanta. But first, this from stamps.com. The post office in my town is just kind of miserable, especially, God forbid, you have to go there on a Saturday. That's just like, you better get there when the doors open at 8 o'clock or you're waiting in line for like 45 minutes. But, of course, with stamps.com, I can do all of that from my desk, whether it's, for example, returning items that don't fit i bought my girlfriend some clothes recently they didn't fit was able to send them back no problem using stamps.com instead of having to go to the post office you can even order a pickup if you want to have it sent back so you can do everything from your desk and of course when i have other stuff to send for the business stamps.com is there as well even if i'm working late at night stamps.com is open of course 24 7 seven days a week it's convenient it's easy and most importantly for me, because of when I do my work, flexible. It brings all of the services of the U.S. Postal Service right to your fingertips. Buy and print official U.S. Postage for any letter, any package, any class of mail using your own computer and printer. And Stamps.com will also send you a digital scale that automatically calculates your exact postage. And they will help you decide the best class of mail based on your needs. And if you do decide to check them out, you should definitely let them know that you came from us and take advantage of this special offer using the CapSpace code. There's a little microphone at the top of their site. Click on that, type in my code CapSpace, and you will receive a four-week trial plus postage and a digital scale without any kind of long-term commitment. So you can check it out. I think you'll really enjoy the service and want to stick with it at stamps.com where you should enter the code CapSpace. Stamps.com, never go to the post office again. So in Atlanta, we ended up doing the second half of this one for the Twitter NBA show because that Bulls-Celtics game was such a laugher. And John Wall, to me, just had perhaps the sequence of the playoffs so far in terms of an offense-defense run. I mean, maybe Kawhi's incredible running game four in Memphis would have to be up there too because that was, was so many more plays. But his chase down block on Schroeder and then this play in a small, small pick and roll, he crosses over Schroeder, goes behind the back on Schroeder, then crosses over Calderon, gets to the rim and makes a spectacular layup. And that really was a part of them breaking contact again because they actually had led by 22, had that lead cut down, and then they were able to push the lead back to double digits thanks to his heroics. He was absolutely incredible really throughout. And early on, he was having issues with turnovers, but I want to give you just his second half numbers. 22 points, 22 points, 8 of 13 from the field, 1 of 4 from 3. So he basically made all of his twos. 5 of 6 from the line, 5 assists, 2 turnovers, 2 blocks. That's incredibly, insane. Yeah, incredibly efficient from every range for the game. 7 of 8 at the rim, 3 of 4 on floaters, 5 of 9 from mid-range, and he hit some really tough ones. You know he loves to snake the pick and roll and get not quite to the right elbow, but a little bit shorter than that. He made some really tough ones in there as well, and Washington just had no answer for him. 
in particular, even when he was one-on-one against Schroeder, it just wasn't fair because as soon as he got even the slightest separation from Schroeder, Schroeder is so skinny, he would just bounce off him and Wall could just go right in at the rim. He had another nuclear dunk with his left hand in the first half where, I mean, he was about to take off and I didn't even have time to be like, "Uh uh-oh, something's going to happen here. He just slammed it through so ferociously with the left. I mean, those left-handed dunks that he have uh, are just unbelievable uh, at his size and not to be left out Bradley Beal was spectacular as well yeah he certainly was I mean Beal was one of the kind of distinct things about this game is that Beal was actually on the floor for more of the Wizards best moments than Wall was so he ended up plus 32 even though Wall was the better player yeah, but Beal you know still it's was- interesting it, it that's continued a series long trend where they've actually their worst minutes have been with Wall on the floor but no Beal uh which you know from past years that was never the case it was Beal on the floor and no Wall that was bad but actually you know it was the opposite in this series so Beal ended up 31 points 11 to 17 from the field only three three-point attempts seven of eight from the line and just I thought he played pretty solid defense too Hardaway Hardaway was five of 18 from the field they bounced around the assignments too but no no Hawk other than Paul Millsap really had that great a day so you think that's overall a success for the guards I don't understand why they never tried Torian Prince on Beal. I mean, maybe they just felt like he's a rookie, he can't do it, he's better guarding bigger players, and they felt like they were just taking Otto Porter out of the series. And Porter, again, he only had five field goal attempts in this game too, but Beal just was cooking Hardaway in pick and roll or coming off of screens every time he was and just getting great looks and especially considering what Atlanta's strategy was which is basically to hang back in the pick and roll you know Beal was just able to eat in the mid-range and we talked about before the game as the Wizards shot 54% in this one that you know what they could do shooting jumpers in the mid-range off the dribble would be key and for the game they were unbelievable in mid-range five of nine on floaters 13 of 24 uh, from mid-range and then they shot 10 out of 24 on threes Uh, Bogdanovich was outstanding and another there are two lineup issues that I thought were big the first one was Atlanta is kind of coming back Calderon that they were doing well there with him in the game but the Wizards didn't have their best guys in and at one point they got it to 91-87 and and actually even 93 to 90 so at that point 837 left John Wall gets Brandon Jennings that's when Beal throws it away it was a three-point game block John Wall had that amazing block on Schroeder from behind and then that's when Wall made that incredible layup that we talked about Calderon missed on the other end then John Wall again they went into a small small pick and roll involving Calderon as I recall John Wall got a nice pretty open 20 footer and now they're up seven and the game is completely changed just in the course of those four possessions and that's because Calderon and Schroeder cannot guard Wall and Beal like you just had to get somebody else in there and Bud just even for those two possessions just missed it and that those were that was a, a 4-0 lead and then it it never really got much closer than that they got within five at one point on a Millsap jumper uh and it went back and forth for a little bit longer until the Wiz finally went on another big run courtesy of Wall but I mean that was really they never got closer than three the rest of the way and 
that four point stretch was huge and then another big thing was both sides actually went with their fours at center for most of the fourth quarter yeah and that created concessions for both sides i mean defensively Millsap is much more of a rim protector than than markeith but neither one of them is there and also you have to defend both uh, both those guys pretty far out so you were asking for a lot from other players as help defenders and i thought that really helped the wizards because they had better penetrators and they had guys that were that could benefit more as finish from the lack of room protection yeah and they didn't get a ton again out of Gortat in this game with Howard in there and what the, the strategy was and so that instead they went with Boyan at the three Porter at four and Markeith at the five and so they had to match up with Millsap but that meant the floor was so spread and now there was just nobody to help on wall and Beal they were able to get to the rim during that period they're able to get open jumpers in isolation uh Bogdanovich hit, hit a couple of threes in the fourth quarter as I recall and that was really big the other thing that was really big as the wizards closed it with a 15 to 2 run at the end was just washington destroying them on the fast break it was 28 fast break points for the wizards it seemed like every hawks miss the wizards just ran it down their throats that's a really good point and something else that was significant in this game and overall was true in the series is that starters versus starters or close to it the wizards were substantially better so in this game like there was a big 19 to 4 run that the wizards had at the kind of the end of the the end of the first half that helped solidify what we thought was then going to be kind of a blow and then the hawks actually had had a nice push in the third quarter to make it close again and then a largely similar lineup with you know auto port with basically the starters and then in the fourth quarter it was with markeith at center they went on an, a 15-2 run that basically ended the game markeith was much better in this one he managed 40 minutes which was huge only had two fouls 17 points was plus 20 and while i was critical at times of brooks of going to him in the post against Millsaps, that's not an advantage matchup for the wizards he did hit a couple of tough jumpers early and I think it just got him engaged in the game. And you saw that defensively, especially in the first quarter, as they got out to a 30 to 23 lead in that quarter, that he just was much better than he had been. And he stayed out of foul trouble and just gave much more of an effort on the boards and protecting the room. So that was really pretty big, I thought for them to and while Paul Millsap was unbelievable in his own right for the Hawks who we'll talk about in a little bit but uh because we've been focusing on the Wizards uh I mean Morris made it so he didn't just get completely destroyed and not at least he was on the floor to not get completely destroyed yeah that 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 is a step what did you think of the game the Hawks played in this one I mean they, they were able to bring it back a little bit but I mean for the most part they were being beaten pretty handily throughout most of this game Right. I think that gets into the idea of the starters versus starters issue. And I just think they didn't have as much talent. It's not that complicated an issue. I mean, Hardaway Jr. is a is an intriguing player. He's better now than I expected him to be by the end of his rookie contract, considering how he struggled he? with the Knicks. I mean, we could we can talk about that in a little bit. Yeah, I mean, you know, he's he's better than I expected. But that's because yeah. my expectations were super low. Yeah, no, I, I guess that's true. But I mean, remember, he showed some promise as a rookie and then his second year, he totally regressed. And, that and might his, be what I was As thinking. they had that miserable, miserable season. Season. so i mean i think if you looked at where he was his first year uh it's uh, he's kind of right there but i mean for the series it was a massive struggle for him 33 percent from the field he averaged seven three-point attempts on which he shot only 26 percent 
only 1.2 assists which for your shooting guard is very very low you know and they really struggled they didn't have anyone else other than Schroeder who could do anything off the dribble poor Bazemore was forced into that role and he just had, had like 976 pick sixes in this game or, or in this series where he just lost and, the ball and, and it a went down for a layup a dangerous irresponsible foul on Bradley Beal yeah yeah when he shoved him as, as he was landing from a dunk um and it was only uh 13 points a game for for Hardaway uh but it, it took him 14 shot attempts per game to do it and also averaged almost two turnovers so it was and then he got killed defensively I thought I mean Zach Lowe was saying that he looked better at times you know around game four or five of the series I mean he had a few moments to me but you know in large part they actually ended up going with Schroeder on him and then they brought in Bazemore to try and guard Wall that didn't really work as well when I say on him Schroeder on, on Beal uh, Hardaway's man so it, not a great series for him going into restricted free agency I mean I'm not convinced that he's like anyone's starting shooting guard right now um, so I don't think we need to talk about the Hawks offseason all the way yet, other than I want to mention that they have just a a metric ton of free agents. But a big thing that they need to figure out is they just gave both Dennis Schroeder and Kent Bazemore a bunch of money last year. Schroeder is an extension, Bazemore is a a free agent. I'm not comfortable with that as a starting backcourt on a successful team. They didn't use it here. Or a starting wing combination. I mean, neither of them. Well, no, I was talking about Schroeder and Bazemore. Yeah, sorry. Okay, I thought we were still on Hardaway. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, I, they're gonna I don't have think to so. Figure, I mean, that, they're gonna that have is to a below average starting backcourt. Yeah, and, right. And Bazemore almost definitely fails the Nene test right now. Just that contract's, it's just a lucrative contract for a guy who is valuable, but not that kind of valuable. And if that's not going to work, I mean, the money that they have spent for Schroeder, Dwight, and Bazemore is somewhat prohibitive. No, it is. I mean, Paul Millsap is going to opt out. They'll have about thirty million in cap space, but they'll need his full bird rights to re-sign him. If they re-sign him, they're really it will prove difficult to add to the team. And obviously, if they lose him, they're not going to be any good, no matter who they sign. No one's going to want to go there. Maybe they try to trade trade Dwight, trade trade Dwight. Uh, but he's looked like his knees are just like encased in ice I, I thought he looked like a moai which i had to look it up at like one of those statues on easter island <laughs> that's what those are called like you just cannot move uh even though he still is a massive presence you know within the four feet of the rim which he can't actually move his body out of and then you know in transition too i mean to think of how slow he is in transition now and he would go for the offensive rebound and not get it and then it was just they're getting killed in transition every time because to me the the key of transition defense is getting your bigs back against someone like wall because if you have just your smalls back wall is just going to go hard and if you can't take a charge on him which is nearly impossible now he just can explode over anybody who's back at at the rim um i'm going to look forward to uh, previewing that celtics Wizards series oh that actually we probably actually need to do that now because uh we won't have recorded until after that so maybe we can talk about that after we talk about the the celtics game which i think we should probably shift to. i don't really have much else to say uh, on this one uh, for the hawks or or the wizards let's do it the bulls just couldn't score again it looked incredibly hopeless for the entire game Dwayne Wade had a nightmare game one of 10 he sprained his ankle at the end he was having his elbow checked out on the sidelines Butler actually played heroically despite the fact that he was suffering with the knee soreness Nikola Mirotic continued to do absolutely nothing out there and the only success that they really had at all was during a period 
in the second quarter when they were able to get back within like nine points or something after going down by 20 in the first and then you know it quickly like went to hell again bobby portis played 30 minutes he didn't do anything zipser had like a few moments early in the second but ended up three of nine from the field for seven points uh king joffrey came in in garbage time he had eight points he it was really just a miserable performance for the bulls worse even than their performance in game six against cleveland in 2015 so uh, you're really left after all of this with butler essentially the only guy on the team who played well feeling like you did about the bulls for much of this season i mean rondo somehow played incredibly well in those first two games and they killed him on the offensive glass and and you know they played harder than the, the celtics did in those first two games and the celtics played way harder than them the last four games and Al Horford just continued to kill them. You know, they had no answers for Horford. Avery Bradley had his second straight great game with 23 points, and it was just a complete bloodbath. Horford, 27 minutes, 12 points, 5 of 5 from the field, 7 assists. I think the word I would use for this game is dispiriting because while, yeah, it got out of hand and you don't want to read too game, much into season, arena, franchise, everything. <laughs> and and it's very possible, not definite, but very possible that this movie is going to start in a very similar way next year. And I feel sympathy for more Bulls fans than I, those. I who... hope it's direct to video <laughs> because I'm not paying, I'm not paying movie theater prices uh, for this show next year. That's for sure yeah but remember that they're one of the most heavily brokered teams in the league so that's always interesting and their season ticket basis is there that's something i know from back when i was in the business but i just i i have this fear like i want every team to be exciting i want every team to be fun and be interesting that if wade opts in they're basically going to sit there and go well crap what are we going to do and you know maybe boston bowls them over with an offer for jimmy butler maybe they don't but outside of that i mean it's hard to make structural changes with the financial commitments that they have whether that includes includes Rondo or not. And when you watched this game, you went, well, crap, if this is what we are, then what are we like? What are we rooting for? Yeah. And you're left again, thinking about the Bulls with and we'll talk we're probably getting a little too far into offseason preview territory but of just like what do they have on this team besides jimmy butler i mean robin lopez me 29 wade had a few moments in the series but you know was ineffectual by the end uh miritich can be a restricted free agent we were asked on the tour nba show of like who's made themselves some money in these playoffs uh nicole miritich certainly not among those names uh as he was a game worse negative 27 in 20 minutes and and for the celtics i mean i don't think we need to talk about them much more we talked about how it was that they were uh, killing the bulls i mean they did shoot really well on three-pointers there, there is something i want to bring out of 39 yeah what is it isaiah thomas is still really struggling from three and yeah that could if, if it lingers it becomes a much larger problem against the wizards than it was against the bulls yeah, I think you're right. And for me, I think the Celtics are going to be able to get plenty of threes against the Wizards. We could maybe transition to that discussion, but they better hit some of those threes against the Wizards because I am uh, skeptical about the ability of the Celtics to keep the Wizards out of transition if they're missing a lot of shots. Uh, and if they're if the Celtics are going to go with this super small lineup as well, I mean, maybe we'll see Amir Johnson back starting, uh, but I mean, John Wall can run it down there throats and 
I think that's going to be the big thing I'm going to be watching is Wizards transition points and then Celtics, you know, what are they shooting on threes? I mean, obviously, what are you shooting on threes can be a, a key for just about any game in this era, but they are particularly prone to it because they get a ton of threes up, but they don't have any just like monster shooters who you are like, all right, these guys are really good. And and Isaiah too, I mean, it's one out of seven. The fact that seven of his 11 shots were threes is not great in this one, although he was, I thought he was really good facilitating, getting penetration and setting guys up he had six assists in 26 minutes and had a lot of other plays where he would you know swing it out and then they were able to swing around the perimeter and get a three i mean when you're getting up 39 three-point attempts you can feel pretty good about like how your point guard's playing usually um who are you gonna put avery bradley on if you're the celtics in this wizard series if he can stay with him, John Wall, but you'll know, I think we'll know that pretty early. And if he can't, then you put him on Beal. But I don't know if that's, if Wall is, a, is that great a matchup for, for Beal, because we've seen that a little bit with him where he, he can body up. But if, if Wall can get that kind of like first little turn of separation, he's just gone. And yeah. I think that's where you start. And then you have to move off of that if, if you need to. So you're saying, you're saying Wall is where you, you start, start him with Wall, but be ready for that to absolutely not work. So now you're putting Thomas on Beal no you're putting Thomas on Porter yeah that's the that's the interesting question I I probably would go with with uh Bradley on or, or uh Bradley on Beal <laughs> interesting uh because I think that Beal you have a better chance of just taking him out of the game completely if Bradley can be good enough but then are you putting Crowder Whereas, on wall yeah that's a good question well I think you, you might even go uh with smart I guess like to start the game I'm probably going uh going Isaiah on wall and just some we're just going to deal with it you know and but yeah, that, that is a good point. I mean, I don't think Crowder is that great of a matchup for Beal either. Smart, I mean, between Smart, I think it's got to be during the meat of the games, you probably just need Smart and Bradley guarding uh, Wall and Beal in some, in some combination. And Smart's going to have to really stay out of foul trouble too. Um and then Porter, if you want to go to Otto Porter in the post, we'll front him. Then we'll double team as well. I mean, is Otto Porter like some great passer out of a double team? Like when has he ever had to do that? You know, you know, is that something that's in his skill set? You know, are we if we force him to spin to the baseline and bring the double team from the baseline, does he know how to handle that? I'm not sure. Uh, Otto Porter, not renowned for his passing or, or playmaking. So that that's something. And then you know also do they go with the small lineup or not it's interesting to me that it seems like for being the ostensible favorites in this series the Celtics kind of have a lot more decisions and like pain points potentially in this series than the Wizards do and the Wizards all right you know John Wall you're going to guard Isaiah Thomas maybe we'll put give you a break with with Uber or Beal every once in a while but you're going to be the main guy and then uh Beal you you guard Bradley and you know Porter can guard the their three man and I think that's another big thing too is that the Celtics don't have like a great wing score who can really take advantage of the Wizards that's one of the biggest weaknesses for the Wizards defensively to me um also whether Jan Mahimi can play the latest on him is that he would have been unlikely had there been a game seven so hard to imagine he's going to be back on Sunday maybe he makes it at some point later in the series but you know he's got to actually like get back in shape as well um yeah yeah he he has a, a calf injury so I mean we may just see a lot of Markeith at center and you know i think if i'm the celtics i'm gonna try to i think i stick with the small lineup to start and just try to wear the these wizards out and you know make gortat guard horford in space also of course interesting drama that 
the Wizards theoretically were the team that Al Horford almost signed with instead of the Celtics. And you know, if you really think about it, you have to say that the Wizards, if if Horford had signed there, would be better than the Celtics are now. But I mean, remember this Wizards team had a ton of question marks, starting with the health of, of Beal and Wall coming in too. So that that was, uh, and you know, they would, might not have been able to afford Jason Smith either if uh, you know they signed Horford. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot to consider in this series, and part of what I'm enjoying about thinking about it, though this is absolutely probably going to stress me out if I cared more about my predictions being right, but both teams are bad matchups for the other team, and I like that because, you know, John Wall is a special type of point guard that the Celtics have, the Celtics have wonderful perimeter defenders. They don't really have a guy to, get, to go after John Wall, and especially they don't have a guy to go after... Well, I think it's the combination of Wall and Beal, because there's no guy that you can hide hide Isaiah on now unless it's a guy who's you know almost a foot taller than him right so that's that's part of it too you could think about it in conjunction that way and while I don't love the Wizards bench I don't completely trust the Celtics bench either so you have that and then maybe it's you know maybe Brandon Jennings does well against Rozier maybe he doesn't and and the Gortat and Gortat Horford's the same way like Gortat Horford both those guys could end up having good games against the other and driving each one of their coaches crazy yeah it'd be interesting to see whether like Jalen Braun can get back to the rotation I'm guessing probably not, or whether you know whether the Gerald Green experience ends or not. Uh, but Brown might be a guy that they need if Bradley gets in foul trouble. You know, I I think that Crowder may not be quick enough to guard Beal or Wall. They might have to try Jalen Brown and see see if that works. Uh, I'm guessing it probably won't because he's pretty inexperienced. But well, I want I want to say one thing. This series is probably going to determine more than anything we've seen so far, maybe in his whole career, how much Marcus Smart is going to be worth on his extension or as a restricted free agent because if he can deliver on basically whoever they'd end up realizing it then that really solidifies his value he's had some really wonderful defensive stretches before but Washington's challenges like if he's the guy that fixes this then that really really increases his value to the Celtics specifically and broadly hmm. yeah that's uh that's interesting I think this is gonna be a fun series though this is gonna be a, I think an offensive series lots of great superstars we have to make know. predictions don't is, we is Isaiah better Ugh. yeah no i guess we do that's right uh shit <laughs> at least we don't have to do spurs spurs uh and uh rockets until sunday <sighs> man i'm gonna go celtics in seven just because i think they're gonna have the home court and they'll just will it out just enough um but i mean i think i think this wizards team is gonna be pretty tough for them uh i don't think this is gonna be an easy series and um I do think that the Wizards have a higher offensive upside than the Celtics. The Celtics are much better defensively. They completely throttled the Bulls down the end of that series, and they've starting to reach, I think, the level that we thought. But um, and I also think that at center, the Wiz don't really have an answer for Horford. But yeah, I mean, Isaiah, he's going to have to hit some more threes. If he shoots the same way he shot in threes as they did against the Bulls, I don't see them winning the series because they he's got to be averaging like, you know, 30 a game in this series because I don't think they'll, if they don't do that, I don't think they're going to have the firepower. Either that or they're going to have to shoot like 40% on threes and shoot 40 of them every game, one of the two. I don't remember the full story, but I was just looking it up and Marcin Gortat only played 11 minutes the last time these two teams faced off. And that is... Interesting. Well, was that, was Mahinmi... How- 
healthy at that point too he played 16 minutes i don't think he was so okay yeah so and then they went with marquee at center so yeah oh, I mean, and jason, I and jason smith and, played 17 minutes in that game oh scott brooks but yeah so my feeling is i think the wizards are going to win this series i'm debating whether it's six or seven really i think that they are the team that gives the celtics fits and what i i've been you know you and i have talked about the celtics so much over the years i think they're so reliant on isaiah and while a lot of their bench players really like hit threes like in this game where they were i think at one point they were shooting like 50 percent from three and isaiah was 0 for 5 i don't trust them at all i don't trust their bench guys i don't trust their supporting players offensively i certainly do defensively but i don't think that's enough to beat washington four times out of seven what i'm debating is whether i think this is going to be a six game series or seven and i'm not saying this like oh my god the wizards are definitely going to win the series i think it's 55 45 or something like that but i think i i do feel like it's like they're the 55 so i'm gonna go i'm gonna go wizards in six damn it because if if it's wizards in seven then i'm claiming that as a win over you so i i also oh no for so sure yeah, yeah i yeah. i also think that that's a certainly a reasonable a reasonable characterization of this series and i'm fascinated i'm open to being wrong as i always am but that's where i i think the wizards have the have the advantage in a couple of key ways yeah i think injuries of course could decide it too if any team loses someone who's really important and it definitely seems to me like the injury rate or if guys get suspended these because these teams take the crap lot. out of each other I thought the Wizards hated the Hawks. The Wizards, the Wizards hate, hate everybody. They're like the Clippers. Well, actually, that's not true. Yeah, they're a lot more. I, I I like them. I like them a lot more though. Like like they're they're uh, I think the, the, they're a little bit more earnest about it and just you know kind of kind of young and egotistical and brash and you know Kelly Oubre is like showing up even though he like barely plays and he's like you know dressing like this and Gortat is like hey you know don't blame me I didn't decide to dress like this I just had to because I'm on the team like there's there's a lot of aspects to it that i enjoy about the wizards media presence and i I hope they get a little more exposure but yeah this is john wall's chance here right like he has been fantastic in these playoffs so far especially this last game he has complained he doesn't have a shoe deal he doesn't get enough exposure he plays in washington he's not a part of a lot of these discussions he gets destroyed in the all-star voting every year even though he's probably better than kyrie irving and uh you know probably i'm sure he thinks he's better than kyle lowry even though he hasn't been in the regular season but he probably is uh overall so this is his chance big series lead him to a victory and now you're really on the nba map because the the conference finals is when a lot of and be even casual people start tuning in in a way that they don't i think for the semifinals well all right we done here with, with this we section are, and i think this is getting into what we talked about before where yeah the first round we, we had some fun games and everything but all four second round series are going to have some intrigue how much depends a little bit on what happens in the game seven but i'm still re- i'm incredibly excited I, I don't think the warriors series is going to have any intrigue at all personally but hey i have to i have to fill i have to fill a daily Clippers. podcast worth of content i'm going to make intrigue damn it yeah <laughs> yeah if it's the clippers that I- i'm calling sweep right now um but all right so getting to thursday's game this is how we called the end or i called i guess i should say the end of bucks raptors misses it short they can tie it here no timeouts here comes Giannis. you better get it to a three-point shooter oh no don't go inside the arc just pull it he's got to just pull it right there no no this is awful why and that's where using up the timeout really killed them and they're burned gotta pull that three-pointer like you got i mean i know he's not a three-point shooter but i know and toronto did a great job of taking away the other options but you got a six-foot guy on you like you can rise up and get an okay look 
So there you heard the the intro. The last shot of the Milwaukee Bucks season was a left-handed dunk from Giannis Antetokounmpo with 3.5 seconds left, trailing the Toronto Raptors by three and really an unfortunate end to what was an incredible season from Giannis, an incredible game from Giannis in which he played 47 minutes. But unfortunately, they didn't prevail. And it's amazing that this game will be most memorable for an incredible Raptors comeback down 25 with 516 remaining in the third. They came all the way back to lead by two. And then Toronto somehow was able to turn it around. Yeah, I mean, it's a game that you can take in a lot of different ways. And Toronto losing a 25 point lead is certainly one of those. And I think in in many ways, that is the part that it's going to link the most with me just because that has a more immediate relevance because the Raptors live to fight another day and that means they're going to fight another best of seven against the Cleveland Cavaliers and there were a lot of moments in this series where you could think okay this is this is a different Raptors team the way that they countered the doubles early on in the like game three or so with the shorting the pick and roll they were moving the ball better and so you're sitting there going okay you know obviously you you want to be reluctant when a team has the history they do but all of those things that gave us reluctance to really be high on the Raptors, all of those things reared their heads in that 34 to 7 run that the Bucks had. Yeah, just a, a completely ridiculous run by the Bucks and, and a few stats that, and we got to give the Raptors a lot of credit too. It sure seemed like they had solved this Bucks team when they led it 71 to 46 in the middle of the third quarter but then that 34 to 7 run it took place over 22 possessions toronto had eight turnovers during that period seven of which were box steals the bucks also had seven offensive rebounds and the damage could have been even worse except they went seven out of 15 on free throws only three out of eight by Giannis during that period and perhaps most telling by the end as well and it's always difficult to quantify fatigue was that Milton, Giannis, Monroe, and Del Vadova all played that entire stretch and then of course finished out the game so they played Giannis played the entire second half and the rest of them played no less than 18 consecutive minutes to end the game and they kind of ran out of gas there but what did you see Toronto doing wrong because really it was more it wasn't like the Bucks were just like killing them especially in their initial offense you know, they ended up getting nine second chance points during that run. Uh, but, you know, they only shot 12 out or 11 out of 22 on their initial offense. So why was it that Toronto couldn't score? They were running a lot of limited oh, wait, hold on, hold on. First, first, before you explain that, why don't you just sort of like stammer and like not really say anything for maybe like the t- first two thirds of your answer <laughs> and then like really rush <laughs> to try and get it all out, you know, within maybe like eight seconds or so. Well, yeah, that gets into a lot of it. But they also had some silly turnovers like in transition or that, that just didn't really make much sense. You know, like those, those sorts of things. That's the old the old Raptors and like what I was leading what I was alluding to in, in the earlier answer but they also just had some just weird stuff where like they were moving the ball up the court there was that one play where terry stole the ball and i'm not even sure the camera caught it it was just like you're just kind of assuming oh they're just going to move the ball down the court and then all of a sudden the bucks have a transition possession but all of that runs together and like one of the just huge parts of this that's so ridiculous is it wasn't one-to-one uh, it, that would be amazing stat if it was but toronto had almost as many possessions if so if we're counting it as sorry trips down the court is probably a better way of saying it they had almost as many trips down the 
court, end in a turnover as ended in a shot, and they only made two shots from the field. Yeah, they were two out of 14, 0 of 6 from 3, uh, 3 of 5 from the line, including a technical foul on Jason Kidd that was very, very costly. Uh, and DeMar DeRozan, one of the key culprits there, he had been having a wonderful game and then went 1 of 6 with three turnovers during that period, only three points. And there are a bunch of plays where a buck often DeRozan or a, a Raptor often DeRozan would drive the lane and then just try to throw it to someone on the wing. But like his guy hadn't really helped at all. And he just threw it right to the guy who was guarding the guy on the wing. It was really just an awful series of turnovers. And of course, you know, they were I mean, as I was doing the Twitter show, every single possession, I was like, well, it's 10 on the shot clock. They haven't even moved yet. Uh, And they just, it's incredible. We talked about this last year too, that they just spend so much time, like either it's pounding the ball, but it'll also be like, hey, you go over here and now we're going to point everybody. And that takes like six seconds of the clock. It's like, people just don't know where to go on this Toronto team at the beginning of a possession, like just run something. They have just no institutional knowledge of like what the plays are or like, all right, if you know, if we're not standing in this exact spot, you know, if we're three millimeters to the left we can't start running the play it's just like really remarkable and you know we railed against this in the miami and and indiana series last year and it reared its head again usually it's in crunch time that they slow down but now they basically decided that they're going to start crunch time and taking the air out of the ball uh with 516 left in the third quarter and it's a big concern against cleveland because cleveland's defense is bad but cleveland's defense can be a lot better for like eight seconds in each possession yeah that's really true right because Cleveland, where are their big problems? Communication. That's their number one issue. And so if you're not passing the ball around from side to side, if you're not making them make decisions, then all of a sudden it becomes much, much easier uh, for them to guard you. And also, like I don't know exactly how I feel about Toronto's defense moving forward. There were some really good plays in here. I mean, Serge Ibaka's block on Giannis in particular was absolutely spectacular. And there were other possessions where Milwaukee just couldn't get anything done. But at the same point, Cleveland makes you work so much harder for any defensive stop than the Bucks do. Except maybe in transition, but Cleveland's awesome in transition too. I mean, I thought the Raptors defense was pretty damn good in this series. And so did I. when you consider how many turnovers they had, I mean, despite having seven steals, uh, there are only two fast break points for the Bucks uh, during that big run. And they still were only shooting 50%. Now they needed to do better on the glass, certainly. Uh, but I did. I wasn't seeing just like massive mistakes that they were making. A lot of times it was just, you know, guys making great plays like Giannis. It wasn't like he was just getting wide open. Like he was just, you know, scoring on him over the help or... Uh, right. But you know, but the, what I was getting at was a couple yeah. of things. One, Cleveland stress tests you very differently because they have so many guys that yeah. are not only capable shooters, but that just do it right away. And oh, yeah, it's a totally of, different animal. But I yeah, thought their, and, I thought their defense wasn't even that bad. I thought like the fact no, that they continued they continued to compete and then they continued to defend at the end of the game, I thought actually uh, sure. was good. I mean, I, yeah. I, I'm, uh, you know, I, I agree like it's going to be a totally different animal with Cleveland, yeah, but so, I, I but don't what, feel bad about their defense after this no, series at all. No, I don't feel I don't feel bad about it. I just don't feel as confident confident in it as I was kind of hoping to just yeah. because of the idea of realizing mostly actually actually I guess that's realizing just how hard the Cavs are to defend but something that the Raptors did really well in this series and I want to see if it carries over was you talked about how they got back and that's a very important part of it but later on in the series they got back in a way that really worked against Giannis because they would basically put three guys kind of in a, a little bit of a semicircle a lot of times if they could pull it off or ra- kind of around the basket and so Giannis could still you know because he's ridiculous he could sometimes still make that happen but it was just 
just so much personnel, so much human for him to get through that sometimes he had to pass those off and the other guys just weren't ready to take advantage of the opportunity they presented. And by the time they kind of stuttered and stammered before they figured out what they were going to do, the Raptors were back in normal position. Yeah, they did a good job of getting their bigs back, uh, even if they did sacrifice the offensive boards to some degree. And I also, though, think that if you, because I mean, they shut down the Bucks for really the last three games of this series until like just that one run. Um, and even in the game that the Bucks won by 30, they didn't score that many points. So uh, I think the Raptors are actually like the second best defensive team remaining in the playoffs. Not that Milwaukee like tests you that much in, in terms of their offense and the way they move the ball, but I think there's just a lot of defensive players who, who can play on this Raptors team now. And I mean, the only guy you look at as below average are maybe Valanciunas and DeRozan. And even DeRozan, I thought, had some moments, not one-on-one necessarily, but where he had some nice closeouts in this series, uh, got a couple of steals. Like he wasn't a total liability as I think he has been at times in the past. I think that's true. I also don't think that the Bucks challenged him as much as they should have. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not predicting I, he's going to be awesome in the next series. So don't get me wrong. But he, yeah. in this series, he was he was fine. And that's the hard thing to reconcile with this is like, yeah, winning this series, especially considering how well the Bucks started it, is an accomplishment for the Raptors. You know, they, they faced a game team. They were able to to win a game, to win on the road and out substantially outplayed the Bucks for the first 30 minutes of this game. So all of that is important. And it gets back to perspective to a degree, because how are they going to feel if Cleveland, maybe they don't run them, but if Cleveland wins that series pretty comfortably, you know, th- this was a mitigation of dis- kind of of disaster, even though the Bucks were a better team than some of the other ones in the bottom of the East. It's hard to go straight from that to a tough series that you're unlikely to win. Well, so you keep wanting to, to shift to Cleveland. I mean, I, I want to talk more about uh, this awesome game because sure, uh, we can I do thought that, too. that I, I, and one of the things was, and Bill Barnwell, of course, is all over this in football, this idea of momentum, right? Like they gave up a 25 point lead. They are a team that, you know, is known for not being very consistent, shall we say. And then the Raptors were resilient. DeMar DeRozan had had a horrible stretch, came back and had the play of the game with that dunk. Uh, and and he also set up the two buckets before that by passing out at double teams. And then they the Raptors actually swung the ball and got great looks. The Corey Joseph three in the corner, which we'll talk about. And then that Patterson dunk uh, off a great cut. Um, and we'll actually go through probably the, all the possessions of that last three minutes, which were crazy. But to say like, oh, well, you know, they're just, these guys don't have it. Like they're just, there's something wrong with them for them to give up this lead. Like, and they have no chance. Now. No, that's not how it works. And maybe it was fatigue on the part of the Bucks. but hey, maybe the Raptors were like, oh yeah, I remember how we got this 71 to 46 lead to begin with. Like we defended and we moved the ball and they were able to get back to that. Like it's more in the fate, like the, these fates are not preordained. It's just, you know, they're going to lose. They were going to blow it. It was going to be an epic collapse until the Raptors players started playing better and they stopped it from happening yeah i mean there's that that term in baseball of momentum is the next day starting pitcher and the bucks you know they they weren't able that i sorry i shouldn't have said the bucks because where i was going with it was that the raptors shook it off and again they they were able to not make some of the mistakes they did before you talked about that joseph possession i don't know if you want to get into that now but the ball movement on that possession was miles and miles better than what had just plagued them and it's great to see a team be able to remember and re and react and and do what they're what made them 
so successful earlier. I think we need to talk about the Bucks' role in this comeback too, because they obviously. I mean, I commented in the third quarter, "Hey, this is starting to feel like their last game six at home, uh, down three two, when they just got completely run off the floor by the Bulls in 2015." And you thought that was happening again, and then Giannis really just willed them back into the game. Jason Terry was unbelievable at the start of the fourth quarter. He was like deflecting passes that they like pressed in the backcourt and got a turnover. He was like deflected an inbound pass in the last three minutes. Della Vadova, you know, played his heart out as well. And then, of course, they finally started hitting some threes too. And, you know, Middleton had a shot from the right wing that I think was the one, oh no, it was Terry shot me that gave him their first lead, but Middleton maybe tied it. Um, where I felt like that's what Chris Middleton's game needs to become for this Bucks team in the future. And that's obviously something we're going to be thinking a lot about is the Bucks future going forward here. But he got the ball. Usually he's pretty relib- deliberate with his jumper and he just caught it little tiny dip and just shot it over a smaller defender i think he was being guarded by powell at the time and it was just money like like chris middleton if he just focuses on shooting more threes and shooting more coming off of screens and and really making that a bigger part of his game and hopefully you know that coaching can assist him with that and putting him in that position when jabari comes back and hopefully jabari will actually be able to give them something at some point next year uh then i think middleton can really fit in well when he's just sort of another guy now who's going to try and back down and iso and then there's he's their only shooter so there isn't really that much shooting around him and the ball just stops and they don't move it they don't have any spacing like that i really don't like that aspect of chris milton's game and he's okay at it but he's not like that good at it you know if he gets a point guard on him yeah it can work but i, I don't really like him against a guy his size i thought norman Powell really kind of shut him down uh, on those plays but that you know that was an example of it i mean and, and the bucks defense although toronto's offense was miserable the, the bucks defense was fantastic Giannis started guarding DeRozan, and DeRozan trying to go one-on-one against him really had no chance uh, greg monroe w- was solid in the pick and roll defense they weren't trapping quite as hard on the, that middle pick and roll they just had him come out to about the three-point line because they know DeRozan's not a, a threat to pull up and and Giannis, when he would get DeRozan on an ISO DeRozan had no chance of shooting over him uh and Giannis had an incredible block when DeRozan drove by him Uh, so it was really outstanding work and then you know Terry was hitting his three-pointers and Monroe was working the offensive glass during that period he had three offensive boards and so did Jason Terry they're getting long long rebounds uh it was really just a remarkable remarkable comeback for a team that didn't want to die and and even though it was still a slog for them on offense during that period they just made up for it with a tremendous effort but then you know they got to the end of the game and those guys you know Giannis had played 47 minutes everyone else who was in the game had played a ton did you agree with jason kidd's substitution pattern just leaving those guys in there basically i don't think that especially with Giannis, that they really had a ton of other options i disagreed actually more with his his kind of his timeout usage than his than his substitution pattern maybe if they could have done both of those in concert given Giannis like a 30 second rest that really was like a three or four minute rest that might have been enough but they didn't really have any sort of replacements in line for that they had lots of guards you know they could have gone with brogdon they could have done a couple things there but with especially without jabari they don't have another guy who can do what Giannis does that's true and kid i'm of two minds about this i'm not as critical of him especially for leaving Giannis in as somewhere but i do of course see the point i mean kid is the ultimate ad hoc coach right he 
goes with whatever's been working for the last 30 seconds or changes up when it hasn't been working for the last 30 seconds. And obviously the unit that brought him back from a 25 point deficit and a lot of coaches too feel like, Hey, these are the guys who brought us back. Like they deserve a chance to close it out. And unlike in a lot of cases, it wasn't like a bench unit. You know, this is a lot of the starters who, who were out there and, and Terry of course was playing well. He was the only buck who could make a three pointer in this game. It seemed like, um, and they had, you know, probably their three best guys on the floor and that was terry and delhi all, all guys who are in the rotation so it wasn't like the lineup in itself was inherently flawed and they're you know they're really continuing to play well i mean they were bringing it back over the entire period you don't want to say all right maybe if they reach like a point of stagnation in the comeback then you would give them a break but by the time they actually drew even it was an inexorable comeback but they didn't really draw even until there were three minutes left in the game and by that point, you know, I mean, what's the point of resting someone then? Um, and, and as for Giannis with the 47 minutes, uh, you know, he played him the first 16 minutes of, of the first half as well. I felt that does, would an extra two minutes of rest really have mattered? Like, and I don't really know the answer to this from like a sports science perspective of is sitting on the bench during a long playoff TV timeout for three minutes, does getting another like two or three minutes of rest you know, in terms of actual time or game time, maybe you get a little bit longer uh, if there's like a foul or something. Like, does that really take you like to where you're actually going to have something more? Like, is that additional three minutes of recovery really make a difference? Or does it maybe just make a difference psychologically for some guys, right? Um, Where you're just like, hey, you know, I haven't been out of the game. I know I haven't rested. I don't have the energy, even though if maybe, you know, you could potentially. Um, So I I, I don't really know the answer to that. I'm not sure that anyone else does. But, you know, it, it was pretty clear. I mean, in the other game, uh Conley and Gasol both played 45 minutes in this one uh Casey only rested Lowry and DeRozan for two minutes each in the second half before they brought them back because of, of the fact that they're blowing the lead so it was really uh I don't know I mean do you, you have anything to add to that I, I think it would have been great if they could have just found a time but I mean there wasn't a single time where I was thinking okay now is the time you can rest him Jason you know in the fourth quarter so the the point you got on that I think is I, I want to reiterate is how long it took because of how much of a margin it was how long it took to make the comeback if it had been you know at the five minute mark the six minute mark then yeah maybe you can pick up that time but also they knew that the Raptors were going to be going with their starters the whole rest of it too so you're seeding the advantage to them for that whole stretch the one exception I'll make is I think they could have rested Middleton a little bit because he wasn't as essential to what they were doing they could have gone a little bit smaller with guards or a couple other couple other options maybe even tried Beasley I, I'm not saying that would have been perfect but he wasn't as as central to what they were doing and he looked really gassed too I mean we focus on Giannis for a good reason but I think a, a little bit of a fresher Middleton could have helped no I think you're right about that Middleton played 42 minutes in his own right at 19 points 6 of 13 from the field Giannis's line he uh 34 points 12 of 23 7 of 13 from the foul line uh, only three assists and three turnovers uh but uh, two steals two blocks i mean he, he was pretty incredible and uh, well and something i want to mention with, yeah, with, ahead, with middleton is i think he missed four free throws in the fourth quarter all of them i think were in the later part of it uh, he was and, he was four or seven in the game for the game so he, i think okay. he missed three and, and maybe Giannis, it was three. Giannis, oh yeah, yeah it was three it was three i was for yeah there was one there was that one that he made uh yeah so but anyway Anyway, like he's usually a little bit better than that. I don't think that made the difference in the game, but you know, it's it's a part of the whole thing. Yeah, and Giannis is seven to thirteen. I mean, <sighs> yeah. he's a seventy-seven percent free throw shooter. You know, he was like just 
like barely grazing the rim on some of these attempts short i mean that's one that you know certainly circumstantially you could uh say fatigue may have played a factor when it was the shot was that short uh but let's i want to pick up here with three minutes left when it was tied at 80 actually i'm sorry it was 80 to 78 bucks yeah after jason terry's three that's right yeah that was that was the three and this was a high pick and roll for DeRozan. And finally, he was able to score with Giannis on it. I mean, this is like the first time, just under three minutes. It was a zero pass possession. They ran the pick and roll and Monroe was back there, just wasn't quite able to cut off DeRozan. And he was able to finish it over both DeRozan and Giannis. Neither of them were looking uh, that spry, uh, but you know, it's still a, a tough layup. And then the other time down, they're tied now at 80. Deli does a midget dribble under the rim. Looks like he doesn't really have anything. And then he throws out to Giannis on the left wing, sets a screen for him. Lowry unable to switch on to Giannis. And Giannis gets under the rim and he throws a great pass to Monroe where Giannis's man Patterson uh, had tried to veer back on him Monroe and couldn't get there. Monroe got a layup. And, and at this point, the Raptors were running Corey Joseph, Kyle Lowry, DeRozan, uh, Patterson, and Ibaka, uh, which was I thought was interesting. I you know would have gotten probably with Powell there, but Joseph I think they felt could give them a little more ball movement. Of course, he has to actually touch the ball to to make that happen, and, and Joseph would end up hitting a big three. And so this is another huge one by DeRozan. They screened with Lowry to try and get Delvadova onto him, and Giannis. Then once the switch had already occurred, Giannis just runs at DeRozan on the left wing I he did, it wasn't even really seemed like he was trying to like scram Delhi out of there it was just you know I'm going to go double team and DeRozan did a nice job they swung it to Patterson Middleton was stuck in the corner in between two guys they threw it to the corner Delhi was there by that time to have rotated all the way over to Joseph it was a great rotation uh, by Della Vadova to get there running completely across the court and that though meant that Milton had kind of tried to intercept the pass and Patterson did a great job going back door and Giannis who initially had switched out on the right wing wasn't able to get over there uh, to block Patterson's dunk Giannis went for it with his right hand it would have been nice to see him go for it with the left but you know again that's one of those plays where maybe if he weren't is exhausted he, he could have gotten there but it was that that was pretty good offense by the raptors but precipitated by a kind of a weird double team uh, and and it, as I recall, it was pretty late in the clock as well. Yeah, it was. I believe. I believe the dunk was with like five or five or six, maybe left on the clock, maybe even less than that. So, uh, but again, I mean, that like qualified as like getting into the offense early for the Raptors with like twelve on the shot clock. Uh, but you know, they gave it enough time to actually swing the ball and, and get something. And this was a key possession too, as they all were. Delhi finds Giannis on the left wing, and Patterson was guarding him. I thought that Patterson. It, it was interesting that Patterson was in instead of Tucker I think just the fact that they couldn't score they felt like they needed some more offense and, I, and Patterson to me did a pretty nice job down the end on Giannis he did a great job of contesting his hook shot across the lane it just rimmed in and out and then Monroe got a tip and that just missed too uh and then this was after this was one of these plays where DeRozan just like wasted a crap load of time at, at, at the top of the key um but it ended up working out for them with maybe the shot of the game, which was that Joseph corner three. And I posted about this on Twitter. DeRozan set a screen with Lowry, uh, who was being guarded by Terry. And then Giannis and Terry went to double team DeRozan. He gave it up to Lowry. They swung it across. And that left Milton basically in between Patterson on the left wing 
and Joseph, not a great shooter, but better from the corners in the corner. And Ibaka did a fantastic job of just screening his own guy, Monroe. Monroe, his job would have been to get the next pass to the corner. And so Ibaka saw that uh, Joseph was open in the corner. He basically just got his body in between Monroe and the rotation of the corner. And that's what enabled Joseph to get that three. And also, you know, once Giannis double teamed, uh, either he or Terry had to kind of sprint back into the lane so that Monroe could get an early start getting out to the corner he didn't do that because and that meant that Monroe couldn't leave his guy early enough and that's how Joseph got that three to put him up three 85 to 82 yeah and that was an absolutely massive play for a series of different reasons because it, it really showed the rhythm that the Raptors offense had on the play before wasn't entirely a fluke it was a, a great look I think it was other than Patterson's dunk it was the best best opportunity they had had to score in quite some time because a lot of the Raptors like I, from what I recall it wasn't like them missing open shots so they were two of six in the restricted area during the comeback so that you know that you can talk about both parts of that equation but it, it swung it and i think at that point it also the crowd had already swelled and had already gotten to that point where they're like oh we're gonna do this and they're like we still think we're gonna do it but we're not as sure as we were before and i i, I always have trouble figuring out exactly how the crowd's importance is in it but i thought that they really did help feel something and it took some, it took a little bit out of them yeah so that was with about a minute 30 left at that point um then Giannis went for a drive from the, the right wing, didn't really have anything, and he tried to lob it in a weird pass back to Monroe on the block, and Monroe didn't really have anything either against Ibaka. He had to throw it out to Middleton, and I thought, uh, this is one of those plays I was talking about by DeRozan. It was actually pretty good. He closed out on Middleton. Middleton tried to get him in the air and get a three-shot foul, and he shot it and didn't get the call. I thought it was a good no call. Uh, DeRozan closed out under control. And so then was that amazing dunk by DeRozan. After Delhi tried to deny DeRozan and knocked it out of bounds in a nice play, they ran a double staggered screen to the corner on the baseline out of bounds to DeRozan. And Kid, in what I thought was a good move, put in Thon Maker, who with only eight on the shot clock, he could, would be able to switch out, and he did. He was really pressuring up on DeRozan. I thought maybe a little bit too much uh, given the length that he has. And Jason Terry, who was guarding the inbounder, Joseph, just kind of stayed right where Joseph inbounded the ball, which was great because there's no way they're going to be able to get a pass to Joseph as he kind of just jogged into the opposite corner. But Thon didn't realize that Terry was there on the baseline. He didn't really force DeRozan to the baseline. Instead, he let DeRozan rip it through in a very powerful, strong move by DeRozan, and he went right to the rim. Giannis was underneath there, kind of engaged with Ibaka. And again, another play where Giannis just looked to not have the juice defensively, and he just never really jumped and DeRozan went up for the dunk he got fouled from behind by Thon too they didn't call it and, and that put them up five and it looked like we were going to be done when Middleton drove down uh tried to dribble on the baseline and find Terry and that was another t- play where Terry just kind of didn't quite get for, far enough down in a position to open up a passing angle another play maybe where you could say fatigue was a factor you never know on this it could have just been you know they didn't have the chemistry or whatever but you know a lot of those plays were just a guy kind of relaxed a little bit was looking for an excuse to uh, I mean I mean, I think that's the difference maybe between being fatigued and not being fatigued is, you know, your default when you're fatigued is not moving. And you have to almost say like brain, hey, you have to move. You have to do this. Whereas if you're not fatigued, your default is just moving. You know, you just react instead of thinking like, all right, do I have the energy to do this? Do I have to do this? Yes. Okay, I'll go. And so there's just that split second of where you're not just reacting to the ball. And a lot of times that can make you late. Uh, It's not even so much necessarily that 
you know you try to move as hard as you can and you just can't get there it's just that you don't even move at all because you're just more tired or you yeah, move think, late because you're yeah, more tired i think that's a really good point and also from my own personal experience and obviously i've never been anything close to the level of athletes i feel like fatigue also affects me in the mental realm in terms of not only the the moving versus not moving but just in terms of oh for reacting. sure yeah your execution and, and you're just your execution too just mental mistakes yeah uh, and that came in a little bit you. more in the rest of this as we're kind of getting into where this went i also i thought that was a part of it on the fly with Giannis being a little bit late on patterson's dunk i thought some of that yeah, might have been sure. fatigue as well but so we should get into the next play though so at this point milwaukee's down five with i think it was like 40 seconds something like that to go something in that range and yeah and they fouled um and they still had a foul to give and then they had another chance to foul right away and did not take it i mean getting the two for one wouldn't have mattered because it really would have been a three for one uh if he, and DeRozan eventually made both free throws with 34 seconds left and then came of course you know that that the Bucks even got a chance the ball with a chance to tie uh, considering that Toronto was up seven with 30 seconds 30 seconds to go after those two DeRozan free throws it was pretty remarkable but you know the two things happen that you always see three shot fouls and turnovers right uh Ibaka fouled Middleton that was a good call Ibaka had his arm forward Middleton went up uh, Ibaka contacted him when you have your arm forward and there's contact on the shooter's arm it's a foul on you and then Milton only made two out of the three free throws I mean imagine where it would have been if he could have made all three of those or if you know Giannis could have made his in the fourth quarter too uh and then after they used their last timeout to advance it into the front court, they inbound it to DeRozan, and he got the ball, was able to rip it through, and then got stripped by Terry. It looked like a pretty clean strip, and and I was impressed that they didn't call the foul on that play too. And he actually knocked it off of DeRozan, so the Bucks had a chance there. And then the Bucks used their last timeout with 26 seconds remaining, down five, and. I didn't really care for that, to be honest. I, I felt that they you know, should have been able to have a play where, because you, you assume that if you're going to make it back, that at some point you're going to need to advance the ball late to give yourself a chance. And, and I mean, it's uh, this is kind of six and one half dozen the other, rearranging the deck chairs as uh, KP would be chiding me here. But just as a general principle for these type of comebacks, I think you give you want to save a timeout until the end and just try to persist when you still have, you know, 30 seconds left. And well, not especially use your when you're down timeout. five, because you know it's going to be at least an extra possession, probably two that you're going to need. So have it ready and have that in your back pocket you know if you don't have any left you can contingency plan but the use of it at that moment didn't seem like it was necessary and then the downside was significant yeah now jason kidd of course would say well hey did you like that three-pointer that jason terry hit we don't get that unless we call timeout instead of the play and that that's what his response to that would be uh no his response to that would be probably really nothing because he never says anything in the media but you know if, if you're being honest me that's what his response would be uh and so they did set up a play for middleton to come to the ball he drove on the baseline and then kyle lowry just lost sight of jason terry at the arc and i think too it's really important that if you're the defending team and you're up five you got to really be in like a no threes defense uh because a three is what's going to hurt you there uh, I mean, if they hit a two, all you really need is one free throw after that, and you can still be up two possessions. Whereas otherwise, you now you got to hit two. And DeRozan, in fact, missed one of them, 
after that and so the bucks had a chance to come back and Giannis, they get terry rebounded the missed free throw gave it to Giannis, and then it really didn't seem like the bucks had much of any play set up at all which they should have because i mean you can call a play from the bench or you should be able to and there was just mass confusion first it was Delhi trying to screen for Giannis. he got lowry onto him and then at some point middleton it looked like was supposed to come off a double screen that they were switching and by the time they actually managed to get all that set up Giannis had really kind of just run out of time it seemed and then he just decided to drive in I think he might have just thought that they were like down four or something because and that a two actually would be of some help but it wouldn't have been of any help with the amount of time that was left anyway and you know as I as I was noting on the open to this I mean I know he's not a three-point shooter but you got a six foot one guy on you and it's not like Lowry during that period was so far up in his grill that he like couldn't even get the shot off you know it would have been contested it would have been tough but I mean in that situation as the clock's running down like you got to just pull that and be, their chance of winning with what ended up happening was basically zero because there was i i think it was like three seconds something like that when he actually yeah, three completed, and a half three and a half when he completed the dunk and so you think about what's left so at that point you're you're down one and the other team has the ball and you have no timeouts so unless you get a a, a steal on the on the inbound but you don't have anything you don't have really ability to set up a trap or anything like that i mean theoretically maybe they screw up you have to get first of all you have to hope that they miss at least one because if they make both then they should be able to foul you before and then the game's basically over and if they don't do that then i it's it's, you have to get the ball such a long way and that doesn't even include the time that passes before the guy gets fouled which ended up actually not being that long i think it was like it was a pretty it was a pretty tight stopwatch for that for that stoppage right there but you know with three seconds left and then DeRozan iced both of those there's just no way you're going to there's no way you're going to win without a timeout down three with three seconds left yeah it's pretty difficult and i mean we saw the wizards do it or the Cavs do it against the wizards because kevin love just threw like an unbelievable inbounds pass but that's that's the example is like even though you have probably like a 30 percent chance or if even less than that of completing the pass like you got to throw the pass over half court and then you know hopefully you have like some kind of a play that you've practiced at some point that you can run there because again they're out of timeouts but snell threw a horrible inbounds pass to nobody at you know like not even past half court and patterson intercepted it and that was that um so yeah i mean we'll have lots more coming up on the bucks off season as we get into some of these off season previews once we preview the actual free agent so we'll look forward to doing that uh they're not gonna have a ton of flexibility greg monroe is gonna have a decision on whether he wants to opt out or not i mean i think i hope that he enjoyed his first taste of the playoffs it was good to see him finally get in there in this uh his seventh season i think um yeah that's right his seventh season and you know i thought i thought the bucks played well in this series like i think he should be encouraged about things going forward you know i still think that maybe maybe their biggest weakness right now is that coach um i thought kid had some good moments in the series they took him out of what they wanted to do but then you know the limitations of his system maybe came home to roost at the end uh so that'll be interesting to see i mean he it looked like you know he was going to be on his way to getting fired and then they had this unbelievable march and they made the, the playoffs got the sixth seed and pushed a pretty good raptors team so we'll see how much of that turnaround really affects things or whether you know they, they think they might want to make a change anyway uh so that'll be uh 
very interesting to see what happens there i mean i would imagine they're probably going to keep him you haven't heard anything about him potentially being in trouble and you know we'll look we'll talk more about the raptors coming up against the Cavs. that's where he starts on monday one point i want to make about the bucks in their season is that if you were to take a snapshot of where they were on opening night of the regular season and you were to say basically this is where things turn out oh you'd it be is fucking such, ecstatic it is such a massive win for them Giannis well, has become a well, star well I, actually i don't know about that because jabari parker tore his acl again no but but think about it in this so Giannis became a star they that's shed, true yeah i mean that's shed, the biggest development of anything yeah of course like, they, like like we we had no idea that he would ever have a season like this in his entire career when this season started right so you have that you also have getting out of miles plumley's contract for basically nothing is, yeah is, that was is a good. big structural piece malcolm brogdon going from being a second round pick to being a potential starter on a playoff team and realizing that even if Delvadova is a little bit disappointing and i'm not necessarily saying he has been that you have a closer solution there with not a ton of cap flexibility and i mean even chris middleton that was that injury was before the season the fact that he came back and played and played well you know he didn't he wasn't perfect in the series but i didn't think that was injury related and so yeah, you're, to you're have, right even to, with the jabari it's even with the jabari thing like because jabari yeah. is a great piece for them but Giannis is the story and a lot of the other ancillary stuff makes jabari's absence survivable and that's awful oh, and thon maker you didn't even mention yeah. the name thon maker he looks awesome he had yeah. five blocks in 13 minutes in this game and Thon makes, I mean, we have to see, but Thon makes Greg Monroe a little bit more expendable. I mean, who knows what they're at, what he's going to do with his option. But, you know, if it's Thon, John Henson, and, and a lottery ticket in some form, you know, like a player who could potentially be there, whether it's a vet or like a vet on a cheap contract or a young guy, I think that's enough. I don't think it's perfect, but I think that's enough. Now they just had a hope that Miles Plumley gets injured and they can trade John Henson's contract to Charlotte too. That's just mean, man. All right, let's get to Spurs Grizz here. I'm not going to spend quite as much time on, on this one because uh, I mean this that game was just so awesome and I really wanted to talk about it a lot and, and you know the Bucks are a team that we've been been fascinated by all year and they didn't disappoint in this series to me the biggest thing that, that I take away from this series going forward and we'll talk about the game itself but it was Tony Parker and you were going to look into how it was that he had such a good series I mean what were his averages for the series they're like pretty good huh yeah, it was ridiculous. I, I didn't focus as much in terms of his scoring averages. For me, I was looking more at the fundamentals. And there right, are well, a lot here, of- I'll, I'll tell you what it, what he averaged as well. Sure. So, since yeah, we'll, just to we'll provide for the back here. end. Yeah. He's averaging in only 27 minutes a game, shooting 53%, 53% from three. 16 points three assists and i think he's had like three or four games where he's been either in the high teens or in the 20s in fact yes he had 22 16 and 27 points today this game was completely ridiculous 11 of 14 from the field with four assists for parker and uh some massive buckets late as well yeah it's it's crazy because remember i think it was that was game three in memphis where he had zero points zero points zero assists in that game yeah. and then came back and dropped 22 18 27 but a couple of big takeaways from what he did one is his three-point attempt rate was double his regular season once that's three-point attempts compared to two-point attempts and he made 53 percent of them <laughs> so that is not necessarily repeatable he was six of 12 on catch and shoot threes in the first five games seven of 13 from three in total because the nba's uh the those shoot the shooting tracking stats hadn't caught in game six yet and 
And he also shot 44.4% on pull-up twos. That's more reasonable. He can do that, but it's a little... Yeah, he's actually little... long been one of the better players in the whole league at, at that shot. Right. It's that's just been far, more of an issue of getting ancillary. that shot. Yeah. So so then the other takeaway, I went through his, through his synergy stats, and the one that was the most interesting to me... Well, there were two. So one... His spot-up frequency was almost double what it was in the regular season, which ties in with the three-point attempt rate thing. And spot-ups are generally efficient shots. He was at 0.82 points per possession, which is actually a little bit worse in terms of efficiency than before, but when you take a higher volume of good shots, that's fine. But then the big one was, as a pick-and-roll ball handler, that was 43.8% frequency. His 1.13 points per possession was ahead of Harden, Chris Paul, and Isaiah Thomas. Yeah, I mean, and he had some pretty ridiculous games, 8 of 12 uh, and and 11 of 14. And, and, you know, it wasn't all layups either. And I just think aesthetically... We talk about how the Spurs are much more isolation-based these days, how they don't move the ball the way they used to. They don't get as many open threes as they used to. And Parker's ability to just get into the lane, even if he's not scoring, just to go into the lane at a fast speed where people feel like they have to help, they have to be aware of him. The ball moves from side to side more. He can start little swing-swing sequences it's really important for this team. And I'm not going to say that he can sustain this, uh, but you know, he did play 37, 30, and 31 minutes over the last three. And, and Pop was even closing these last four games. I think he closed, or at least the last three, he closed with Mills and with Parker. I don't think he can do that against Houston because you know they're going to need someone to guard James Harden other than Kawhi. Danny Green, you would imagine, to have a bigger role in the next series. But just to be able to get more guys in the floor, and Mills can do that a little bit too. He's at least got some speed. He doesn't really have any moves the way Parker does so guys you just put the ball on the floor and make the defense collapse and make a pass it really helps and the spurs dominated offensively throughout most of the series i mean this was these are some crazy slow games but there are also games where the spurs are i mean they put up a 134 offensive rating the last game and they are over 125 again in this one but you know most of the evidence has been and maybe he's just healthier now than he's been in the last few playoffs uh he had a couple of good games in last year's playoffs like that game one against oklahoma city he was huge but i'm still not a believer yet but you you have to at least think about it a little bit but i think yeah the threes that's not going to continue and you know i think the that pick and roll success i mean league average is uh, you know 0.8 points per possession as a pick and roll ball handler and so he's he's just not one of the best anymore and I, i thought that this memphis team especially once they started playing Randolph and Gasol together, were set up pretty well for him to be able to have some success. Um, but, you know, I mean, if he could play like this in the next series, you know, I like them to win. If he can't, uh, which I don't think he will, then, you know, it could be a toss-up. And we haven't thought, it, I mean, we know what that series is. I'm not ready to make my prediction yet in this series. I got to think about it very seriously because this, I, I think, will be my hardest one to pick of the entire playoffs. So what can we say now about this game from Memphis's perspective? I think there are two big takeaways from Memphis's perspective. One, Mike Conley deserves a Viking funeral. I mean, while some of the fouls he drew were were BS, and there are reasons to complain about that, he had a, oh, another. Yeah. Those two in the, the those two in the fourth quarter were just the two three shot fouls were just. I mean, it gets worse. I find a worst one of of the playoffs every day. It's incredible. But but still, even with that, he still had another strong game. Maybe not his strongest, but twenty six points, five rebounds, just two turnovers, a huge part. 
of their offense. But then the other thing, which was one of the most surprising things in a very surprising series, San Antonio absolutely dominated on the offensive glass and it ended up swinging a few key possessions late. Yeah, it did. David Lee was outstanding. The Spurs totaled 16 offensive rebounds in all. And considering how well they were shooting the ball, that was a lot. 43% of offensive rebounds. And of course, they're one of the better defensive rebounding teams as well. So they still managed to get 81% of their defense rebounds. They just could destroy Memphis on the boards. LaMarcus Aldridge didn't shoot incredibly well, 7 out of 17, but he had five offensive rebounds. D. Lee had two. And in the last, as the Spurs made their big run at the end, they scored 13 points on six possessions at one point. And they only missed two shots down the stretch. And those two were both offensive rebounded by Delia tip dunk and a great tap out to Kawhi Leonard as well. And, you know, I thought part of that was because the Spurs were getting a lot of penetration. Uh, part of it was their own great effort. And then part of it was, you know, part of it was guys crashing the glass off the pick and roll where you're very difficult to box out. And then part of it was that Memphis's bigs, in particular, Marcus Gasol, who only had four defensive rebounds in 45 minutes, uh, just didn't do a good enough job. Yeah. And I think part of what makes this series so distinct and very unique and not that uniqueness has degrees it does not in, in terms of the playoffs is that these two teams played so big and very rarely ever moved away from that and i don't know what that means for san antonio moving forward but it was certainly entertaining yeah, I thought so too. Um, and I do think that Memphis deserves a lot of credit for how they played in this series, particularly on offense. I, I was really impressed with what they're doing. I mean, even in this game, you know, this is the number one Spurs defense and they had a 117 offensive rating in this game. And, you know, you mentioned Conley was great. I did hope that they could get some more three-pointers out of Gasol in the series. Marcus Gasol, they, they didn't get that many, but obviously he was facilitating pretty well. And for some reason, I mean, the Grizzlies just shot unbelievably well on three-pointers. They were 12 out of 27 in this one. And, and for the series, I would be shocked if they weren't over 40%. I mean, it seemed like they're hitting well over 40% every game. And, you know, I don't know how much you can take away from that going forward since they historically have struggled from three-point range, although, you know, they shot a lot more recently but you know James Ennis and Andrew Harrison combined at five out of six on threes in this one but I did think that Ennis did a pretty darn good job on Kawhi Leonard one-on-one one of the better jobs I've seen as far as just dealing with him in isolation now in the pick and roll it was more problems and Kawhi with his amazing ball handling compared to where he was even at this point last year gave them a ton of problems and so so that was something that memphis really struggled with and, and they were going to struggle more defensively too going with sebo one thing that i thought was very interesting was uh david lee actually defended zach randolph pretty well in these last couple of games and it was really when they went to gasol guarding randolph that randolph got two immediate duck-ins right at the start of the fourth quarter and popovich was like well sorry pal i gotta take you out of here uh because you can't guard zach randolph um and, and i do definitely respect that pop is just like hey you know what pal like i'm treating you you like everybody else like you know i know you're a prideful player but uh pow now just doesn't complain and he's just a spur unlike in chicago and la when he was not content with a smaller role so i pulled the stat and i'm blown away by this in two different ways so memphis shot 38.6 from three percent from three over the series so that's very very good for especially for them that's the thing they have like best... one game they had like yeah. one game where they were like really bad and like all the rest right of them they were good, yeah they were over 40 I, i'm pretty confident i can't remember which game 
game that was, but I think if you took that out, they'd be higher on the list. But what I was getting at is 38.6 is seventh among the playoff teams in shooting from three in the first round. That's insane. Yeah, so Indiana 39.1, Cleveland 40.3, the Warriors 40.3, the Jazz 40.4, the Spurs 41, and the Bucks 41.2. Yeah, and surprisingly, Houston, who's one of the best, they really struggled quite a bit. I mean, they shot like 28% as we talked about. Uh, but they sure got up a lot of attempts. That's that's for sure. Um, some other notes on this one. Troy Daniels was plus 11. This will shock you, but Andrew Harrison, even though he only played eight minutes, uh, was negative eight. They did play some minutes, though. I mean, we mentioned that Conley played 45 minutes. They did play some minutes with Harrison at shooting guard. Uh, five minutes and they didn't do too well uh, during that time and, and that Spurs run at the end it, it was really just incredible like they, they were down by seven Kawhi hits two threes and then they just continued on I mean the, the amount of points that they scored during that period like they just were completely unstoppable and showcased I, I mean I don't want to say why they were one of the best clutch teams in the NBA this year because I think you know we've established with the Thunder the Warriors last year Spurs this year that that kind of stuff can be a little bit more ephemeral and, and but uh, they certainly continued that trend in this game. They were completely unstoppable down the stretch. And other than that, I mean, I thought the Spurs big man usage was interesting. Gasol was 0 for 6 from the field and had two turnovers. And uh, as I mentioned, like got eaten up by Zebo in his 20 minutes. Deadman played three minutes. Bertans played four minutes. He got killed by Zubo when he was in there as well. And so that meant that Aldridge played 42 minutes. And, you know, again, because of the fact that I think we're going to run into some times when he's their only really reliable big man, especially trying to guard in space going small you know and unfortunately going small might mean like more kyle anderson as well in the next series i mean that's just that's the number one thing that i just can't wait to see in this next series is is pop gonna stick with the two bigs and how is that gonna work out defensively and you know i mean they're gonna have someone guarding trevor reza i mean maybe trevor reza will just keep missing shots and it's not gonna matter or maybe he'll make some or maybe they'll have the speed advantage and pop will have to adjust uh maybe we'll see ryan anderson more than we did in the last series as more of a a guy who can be more of a hybrid play defend in the post against some of these guys and then obviously stretch out really deep to the three-point line you know that that's what i'm going to be watching to see because i mean maybe even more than golden state in some ways unless golden state goes with green at center houston like trying to guard them with two bigs is very difficult and then you also have like their pick and roll defense as well trying to guard harden two on two in the pick and roll like who's equipped on the spurs team to do that is it going to be deadman like are they going to play him more now like it's going to be very interesting to see how they use their bigs in this next series i'm so excited for rocket spurs i mean even when the, when the bracket came out there were things that could have been more interesting earlier and i mean i'm also really excited for Cavs raptors the two series that got solidified today but rocket spurs is just going to be a a great series and a ch- one that challenges both coaches and both teams which is something i always look for in a series and you know san antonio's transition defense how they approach a team that shoots a ton of threes like that's kind of cool with it even if they're not all the best looks so there are going to be some games where they just kind of some games where they eat the bear and some days where the bear eats them like I, the whole thing is just a blast to me and we have a couple days to think about it because it won't start until monday a couple other small thoughts on this one uh, ben falk tweeted this out something that i did not know actually that mike conley is actually a natural righty but he just shoots jumpers left-handed so that's how he that has explains his good, floater good touch with his right-handed floater um 
but maybe it's just and ben simmons is like kind of the same way right he shoots that lefty jumper but he's much more comfortable around the rim with his right hand uh i mean i i guess we still have to mention too just the the awesome game that Kawhi leonard had his line in this one 29 points 12 of 13 from the foul line uh and four assists three steals he had a huge steal on james ennis late as ennis was in the late clock tried to go into a fadeaway jumper and then threw a desperation pass and leonard was all over that one like leonard has really like undressed ennis a couple of times in, in this series for steals and i think that's about all i've got here on this one unless you have anything you wanted to add i do i i have a couple of things one is i thought james ennis it was late i'm trying to get the exact timestamp. ennis had maybe the record scratch of the year because of the moment that it was in and so it was i think it was in the final minute where they they swung the ball swung the ball and then he got a chance from three and he just he ate he ate that then he did this really awkward pass fake and then he threw the ball and leonard just popped it right yeah yeah that and, was the steal that i was talking about yeah that was pretty ugly yeah that was the steal you were talking about and then Kawhi, you talked about his overall game but in the fourth quarter and it was even later than that 10 points three of five shooting three of three from the line three rebounds three assists and that huge steal uh, i will do have one other thing too i had to rewatch the game on the spurs feed oh man are they and i'd always avoided them because usually i've got direct tv and league pass so i always pick whoever the opposite team is of the spurs when i'm watching them all right you're not allowed to use we you're not on the team you're not out there playing at least provides just the slightest illusion that you can be just a little bit unbiased uh and they're not even like i don't care for the Cavs announcers either they're nearly as bad but at least they're like kind of entertaining about it and they're like hooting and hollering and stuff i mean they're just like sanctimonious about the whole thing it's really just like i i hope i never have to listen to them again. but i hope you'll listen to us again <laughs> that's like kind of a downer to end on why did i pick that at the end that was dumb well i hope you that you guys who are listening to us on thursday night enjoyed this one we're making this our first podcast available tonight for our patreon subscribers who we really appreciate if you want to check that out there's a link in my twitter bio it's patreon.com slash duncan larue and we appreciate you guys supporting our efforts to be independent basketball journalists uh got a lot of great messages and, and people signing up already uh, twitter nba show i thought it was a nice success and we're basically you know we're not getting paid anything for doing the twitter nba show right now so we're kind of using that as a way to support that endeavor and then try and give you guys things like for example when we only do five dunked on episodes a week and so it seemed like a better idea to just do one tomorrow night and so we could get all five of these games in but since we recorded the night before for these two games while they were fresh in our minds we figured we could give these to our uh subscribers on patreon a little bit early and uh obviously everyone will get the same content a day later so you're getting the same if you're not a subscriber you're not getting anything less than you would have been getting before but we're giving you a little bit more because we wouldn't have done six episodes this week because that you can't really do that because then that cannibalizes the numbers for the whole week um if you do six instead of five so that's kind of why we're limited to doing five which obviously is uh a lot for any nba podcast anyway so hopefully you're uh satisfied with that and i hope we're uh you feel like if you are a subscriber that we're uh giving you some value added here and, and uh that will make it worth it for you because that's definitely what we're trying to do and we appreciate all your support so we will talk to y'all on sunday night we will have uh wrap-ups of the weekend games and look ahead to the series that start on monday Cavs, raptors and spurs rockets talk to y'all then at bet365 we don't do ordinary we believe that every sport should be epic every basket every game every point every play 
From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply.